You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a cloud-native DevOps course creator, consultant, and manager of this growing community on cloud-native DevOps. This podcast is an edited-down, audio-only version of my YouTube live show, which airs on Thursdays at brett.live. This podcast and all the free stuff I create is made possible by my supporting members. Thank you all so much for your continued patronage. There are well over 100 of you buying me a coffee every month, which makes that just 1% of the people that read, watch, or listen to this content every month. I'm hoping we can double that to 2% this year. And as they say, membership has its privileges. So you can find out how to support this show, my cloud native training, and our DevOps community at brettfisher.com. In this episode, Matt and I are joined by Michael Cade, the field CTO at Kasten by Veeam. Now, if you've been around servers for a while, you probably have heard of Veeam. It made its debut back in the late 2000s when virtual machines and implementations of VMs were big. And I first found out about them many, many years ago in those days because it was a great free product for small virtual machine environments and data centers. And they've made tons of additional backup and recovery products over those years. And now they have Kasten K10, which is a Kubernetes backup and restore slash recovery product. And so Michael comes on the show to discuss the origins of K10, some of the major features. We get some demos and break down just the ins and outs of what this product does. Now, in addition to all the details about the product, Michael demos some of the features in the original live show. So if you wanna see those demos, check out the YouTube video. And I hope you enjoy this discussion about Kasten K10 by Veeam with Michael Cade. Hello. Hello. This is Matt and I am Brett, and we are the hosts of this show on the internet. So welcome. If you haven't been recently, Matt is now the co-host. And he's here in the flesh. I have not been here for years. You have not. But you were here last year. And we hung out in Florida, and the rest is history. That's it for us. We're going to bring in the guests now because we've made them wait long enough. <laughs> Michael mm-hmm. Cade, hello. Hey, how's it going, Brett? How's it going, Matt? Hi. Glad to Good. have you. All right. So for the last half an hour, because we haven't been streaming for half an hour, we have been furiously making Kubernetes clusters. Really, we're just watching Michael make Kubernetes clusters. <laughs> you're at you're at Veeam now. Talk about that for a minute. Like, what do you do there? Yeah, so I've been at Veeam for eight years, focusing around data protection, mobility of data, moving data. But generally speaking, our first line of conversation is the insurance policy for data. So backing up stuff and recovering stuff. But there's much more exciting stuff that we talk about or what you can do with that data. But I've been here eight years, like I say, and I started off being very focused around storage and infrastructure around virtualization. And then more recently, I've been more focused around our Kubernetes backup and data management offerings around Kasten. So in case you didn't know about Veeam, we're just going to mention that for a minute. I look at Veeam as, and we were talking earlier, I learned about Veeam probably 15 years ago or more. It's a backup company. That's how I, <laughs> mm-hmm. a, back, a, data, a backup and recovery company. I, I remember learning about them because they were one of the first companies to easily back up all the VMs on my virtualization platform instead of from inside the OS. Of course, nowadays, that's how we always back up VMs, right? But Back then, that was a novel idea was, hey, let's not put a backup agent in every server in every VM. Let's put it on the host and back up everything from the host level. And so you've been there eight years. That's pretty impressive in today's world of everyone hopping around to new jobs in tech. So you've got some history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so before I joined, I was at Avnet and focused around NetApp storage. And that was exact and tinkering around with home labs and that's what drew me to, to Veeam as well in regards to like that community user, have a home lab, need to protect some stuff. Veeam have this free community edition. Let's try it out. Oh, it just works. That's kind of what I expect yeah. to happen with software, right? I just want it to work. And then when bad things happen, which they do generally all the time with home labs, yeah, I need to be able to recover things. So yeah, let's get it back. And that was just as easy as well. So that was kind of drawn towards... Their community presence as well, offering like free software is always nice, but there's always free like a puppy or 
actually free and they have well they still have a, a strong community addition around all of their offerings so yeah that that theme hasn't gone away and that's probably why i'm still around is that ethos has not disappeared i do remember that that was really before the hype cycle of open source began i mean granted we had open source in the 2000s but i do remember that th- i wouldn't be surprised that if my first time using it was a free edition, a community edition, when in, in the world where everything else in the enterprise was sales cycles, right? It was like you couldn't download demos that worked. You could, you know, you had to buy something before you could try it. I mean, I never really considered that a trailblazing aspect of some of these companies, but now that I'm, now I'm realizing that's probably a theme of some of them is they were the, they were open source or not open source, but they were giving it away free before open source was really such a thing before we had GitHub. Exactly, like a freemium edition. And the amount of feedback that we get through that community is incredible that is then passed on to massive enterprise accounts that, that take advantage of that. Yeah, I would say like the conversations that I have, and obviously that's changed over the last few years with the focus around Kubernetes and DevOps, but the feedback loop comes from the community and that's still important for us. So yeah, very actually very similar to... The open source world yeah but looking at your background the name the company name i'm most impressed with that you were at was the world of computers i mean oh, you were you the like, world of computers there was That's nowhere cool. else to go right no. <laughs> <laughs> you've definitely gone back in time there that was my first ever job where i'm building servers for the university of cambridge and little mm. did I know what they were even using them computers and servers for <laughs> at that time and getting some crazy kit delivered. Yeah, I feel like I could have, if I could rewind time of what I know now, that would be a very exciting, exciting time. <laughs> All I can think about is Wizarding World and how this could be like, the, this is like the anthology of computers and books is the world of books. <laughs> yeah, there Computing. You go. I was going to say, so you fast forward a little bit. So eight years, right? We You didn't have... Kubernetes backups, even though Kubernetes might have technically existed eight years ago. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. We weren't really heavy in the world of backups, I think, especially like when Docker and Kubernetes first began. It was like, hey, you don't back any of this up. <laughs> this is all ephemeral, right? At some point, Veeam was starting to think about how do we back up Kubernetes? You want to talk a little bit about how this all came to be and how how Kasten yeah. showed up in the world? Yeah, yeah. So, so Kasten was an acquisition to begin with, but I think you've got to go back to around 2017, 2018, when you start looking at staple sets and at the same time, Brett, and that this is how we started talking in Tampa at an event as well around, what do you do around like Docker volumes? Like how do we protect Docker volumes when you start to, to play around with that? Fast forward, Kubernetes becomes the predominant container orchestration engine. I'll say that, knowing my, knowing my, my peers in the room and we start seeing staple sets, we start seeing persistent volume claims, we start seeing the database services release their software, and where there's a database, there needs to be some level of protection. Yes, there's that ephemeral world of stateless workloads, but where there's a database, there is definite state, and that probably needs protecting to some degree. It's probably important data. So we're starting to get requests internally from uh, our customers about how what are you doing around this? And we're constantly saying, well, we don't have a story about that. So we start investigating. I'm part of the office of the CTO. So we start to investigate companies and, and options that are out there. Open, going back to the open source mention around tooling around things like Valero that VMware picked up from a Heptio acquisition. We were looking at that. And what actually came around was Kasten and we started looking into Kasten and they have a very similar ethos to what Veeam does. They're very much agnostic to any Kubernetes distribution. Veeam were agnostic to any storage, complete software play. They had a community edition as well where it was free worker nodes that they would offer as a target to get people to at least look at it. Again, if you're running Kubernetes at home, there's an option for that. And just a little bit further ahead when it comes to things like application consistency and what I mean by that, and we'll probably get into that in a little bit more detail, is how do I coerce the workload? How do I coerce that database before we then take a a backup of that or a snapshot of that and offload that? So that was another key area. So we started to look at that and it was probably, I think it was 
maybe Vmon 2019. So Vmon is our yearly conference. We probably get about 1,500 people. We just had it last week. 1,500 people descended on on Miami, which just so happened to be the one in 2019 as well before that weird pandemic situation. And they were actually a partner at that event. They were an alliance partner. So we'd already started to begin that conversation. Fast forward October 2020, and we acquired them into the Veeam family. And here we are a couple of years on. So the focus here is, again, always starts with that backup and restore, get a copy of that data so that we can recover it if bad things happen. If really bad things happen around disaster recovery, so fire, flood, and blood is and ransomware, it doesn't really rhyme. It doesn't go with my fire, flood, and blood plus <laughs> ransomware. But it's, it's maybe the blood that, is ransomware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. So maybe we have to. Maybe people don't consider that. Okay, we've ha- we've been hit with a ransomware attack or flood, or especially if it's a a federal case at that point, they're probably going to, you might have everything up and running. You can restore all your data. Great. But the Fed teams are going to want to see that. They're going to want to get into that source data center. So where disaster recovery kind of spans that line is, oh, I need a copy of that so that business can keep working because they might take over it for seven days. So just things around disaster recovery isn't just a, a doom and gloom, a natural disaster type situation anymore, especially as we look at like cloud providers i would consider a disaster if my cloud provider goes down for anywhere up to half an hour to an hour that would be a disaster for me so how do we get that up to another cloud provider as quick as possible and we can talk about that in in the future where i get excited actually around what we do and i kind of brief briefly touched on this around it's the mobility of that data. Now, I specifically talk about the mobility of Kubernetes data, PVCs. How can I take it from one place to another or look at the whole application? How can I recover that to a net new Kubernetes cluster, regardless of where it is? But that's kind of Veeam's story. That portability story has been VMs to physical to VMs, VMs to cloud. And now we're talking Kubernetes, which by, by all accounts can be ran anywhere and it might look a little bit different from here to there but it's still kubernetes so yeah that so the premise behind that is being able to move applications plus data to any location it's the very forty thousand foot view of Kasten k10 and what it does and I, one of the things that you brought up brett actually was so Kasten is the company name which is Kasten by veeam but the product, the specific product focused at Kubernetes is Casting K10. And we have a few open source projects that I'll try and touch on as well as we go through the session. So should I refer to this as K10? Should I just, is that how you call it in, ter- in the office? or? Yeah, so K10 is an easy way to just, uh, so I know exactly what you ta- you're talking about. If you're talking about K10, you're talking about the application that is deployed within Kubernetes that helps you protect stuff. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Because I want to know what all the cool kids call it. In fact, I wasn't when I was first, you know, all these words on the internet. I don't know. You were saying that Kasten was a German word, I think, or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's German. Don't quote me on this. I don't speak German, (laughs) but I think it's cabinet or yeah, wardrobe or something. Cabinet is where we store our stuff. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. I I think I was after the fact that it was named that. So, well, that's a good, it's as good as any. I mean, we don't even have to have a reason for names, but uh, so K10, I mean, I'm an operator at heart. Like I I started and spent the first 20 plus years in this industry, really very rarely ever getting paid, if any, getting paid for development. I was always an operator, sysadmin. And one of the things that I always felt like with backup products in particular was that the complexity and implementation and management, the level of complexity was inversely proportional to the likely success of it during a recovery. In other words, we would have very complicated products or things that we brought together through scripting and cobbled together different p- tools, especially when we were early days in Linux and we didn't have complete products, I, was, I would call it, you know, our syncing with scripting and all this other stuff. And that the likely success of us being able to use that in a recovery scenario was directly related to how easy that tool was to use. Because a lot of times the people that implement it aren't the people that end up using it to recover. And um, and the real complicated ones are the ones that you're not going to try out to test and 
you know, rather than just relying on, you know, a the actual disaster to happen, but mm -hmm. actually practice and try it out a few times ahead of time. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to throw any products under the rug, but backup exec, <laughs> I'm going to just say that I remember this 20 <laughs> years ago, right? It, it, it was a tool that seemed easy to use, but during recovery, we would always have problems. And it was such a frustrating scenario to think you were fine. And or this was probably pre-DevOps, so we weren't exactly destroying things on the fly and then just recreating them for the fun of it. It was always a very big deal to be able to do a mock recovery or some sort of simulated event because we were usually dealing, we were early days virtualization. Things were very still very physical in the data center. And I just remember a lot of, battle wounds from mm. dealing with recovery scenarios and being so nervous that our backup solution wasn't going to save us. And one of the things that I know I'm motivated to, to learn, cause I have, I'm here learning too. Like this is, it's great that you're here, Michael, cause I'm dumb and I need you to educate me. But I, one of the things I'm really interested in is like talking more about recovery and more about some of the options and the methods for that than what we, I mean, you know, demo 101 is usually let's show how the backups work. Uh, yeah. For me, it's always more about the recovery. hundred percent. And I think that Brett comes from the sysadmin background that you have and where you've probably been burnt by that, hmm. as you mentioned, right? Backup is, I didn't write the product. I don't write product. I'm not really, I'm more of a hacker, if anything, when I try and make things, but backup is the easy part, right? We're lifting and shifting data from A to B, that's relatively easy. Now, how do we get that Jenga block of data back to where it was when bad things happen is the difficult part, especially at scale, at speed. Mm -hmm. And also when you think about recovery, it's like you're probably waving your arms around going, oh, other bad things are happening as well. Like, especially yeah. if it's an outsider coming in, a malicious activity, You've got other things to worry about there as well, like the safety of people. The data becomes like neg negligible at that point. So right. recovery just needs to be what I want when I need it and as fast as possible. So 100% is that. If I go at, like, and if we're specifically talking about Kubernetes from that recovery point of view, and also to touch on some of your points, Brett, is can we back up things natively within Kubernetes? today with scripts and using native tool sets, especially with, like with the in with the introduction of like the CSI, volume snapshots, 100%. We could write as many cron jobs as you want. We can script everything. But again, you're gonna you're gonna hit that point where you're probably especially as an application developer, you're going to be comfortable in the CLI, you're going to be comfortable maybe even getting your application, you you know, your application. When you throw that over the fence or when it gets passed on or gets inherited from a data management point of view, a responsibility point of view, that sysadmin probably doesn't prefer an automated CLI or a, an API to interact with. It, they probably still at this stage, as much as I'm seeing that, that trend and that go the other way, they probably still want that UI. They probably still want to hit the easy button. And I'm seeing both, so it's not exclusive at all. So from a casting K10 point of view, it had to be specifically available from both the CLI, i.e. CRDs. It has to be available from a kubectl type, type interaction, but it also has to have that easy-to-use UI that right. kind of set and forget. But when I need to, I need to just hit that button and I need to get things back up and running. Yeah, to me, one of the litmus tests is can my most junior operator or anyone who would be in that role, uh, can they do it and can the boss do it? <laughs> you know, the person who didn't implement it, right? The, the person who's in charge, because it's going to happen when you're on vacation. When you take the holiday weekend and you're the expert in the backups. I, I've i worked in teams where we had one backup expert. That was the person that was their entire job was to maintain backups. You know, obviously, they're very tightly usually especially in data centers, they would be related to the operators and to the data the, the data engineers or the storage engineers because they'd use a ton of the storage. They always need extra storage, more than you think, to store all these backups. And then the operators, and back when we used to actually have people sitting in data centers, I, I'm dating myself. I am a little gray. But people would literally, we would have an office in the data center and there would op be operators in there and they had to be able to restore because a lot of times we would not be 
able to get there. And I think nowadays, of course, everything's online. We don't necessarily have to go find a physical tape and move it into a physical tape machine. But that wasn't that long ago. Like those years (laughs) haven't been gone that long. So I'm still very much in an attitude of like, there may be a few people that know here that know how to design the backup jobs and to architect the solution, but there needs to be a lot more people that know how to recover. And, you know, there's like that break glass moment where you need the permissions to suddenly overwrite production with a restore that we all get into. But to that point as well, Brett, like you'll be amazed the amount of enterprise customers, customers in general that still need to offload backups from Kubernetes to tape. That's a, there's a use case and a an answer to that from a Kasten K10 plus Veeam backup replication as well. But without getting into that, I like to think that is niche, but the amount of enterprises that we speak to, it probably would easily pay for my house if, if I could <laughs> transact that myself. Yeah. But I, don't, I think just to go back again is that over the past at least three years, we've seen that, that uh, adoption of stateful workloads within Kubernetes much, much more than maybe we once saw. That argument around stateless versus stateful, I still hear it. Don't get me wrong. I'll go into a customer and they'll say, oh, yeah, we're running this database. And you're like, that database is definitely stateful. If you lose that that data, what happens? And they're like, oh, yeah, that would be our HR system gone forever. They might <laughs> want that. But, yeah, there's, a, there's an element of, and if we think about Kubernetes in general, forget about K10, the last at least six releases over the last two years have been, had something to do with storage, had some sort of enablement for data in there. So that's another myth that it, we're constantly debunking from a community point of view, a data on Kubernetes type community point of view, because it's happening. And I think it's fair to say is that the more off the shelf software that comes as a state for workload, so Microsoft SQL have released a container image for Microsoft SQL. Just because you can doesn't mean you should, but it's an option. And th- with the enhancements around operators within Kubernetes, it just really makes life a lot easier and simpler to run da- data services within Kubernetes. So that's kind of le- a level set is that if it's a stateless cluster, you probably don't need K10. Although we have got some customers that are running complete stateless workloads that just want to protect their, basically their manifests, even though they've got it in some sort of source control, some GitHub or Git-based source control system, this will allow us, generally speaking, we're going to capture the whole application. So we're going to capture those manifests anyway that make up that whole application. But the most important part is the PVC, the data within that PVC, and then if it's a data service, how do we make that consistent as well? Into So K10 is deployed within your Kubernetes cluster. We have our microservices that are built up, our pods that we have. So we have our controller, we have our gateway. We have all of the things that enable us to go out to that Kubernetes cluster, discover the applications, feed that back into our UI or into our CRDs and execute on that, whether it's a, a policy that runs at midnight every night to protect our workload, etc. This is kind of, these expand as we, as the cluster expands as well in a true cloud native fashion. Because of, we're deployed, so if you've got multiple Kubernetes clusters, you're going to have multiple deployments of K10. So you'll have a dashboard per cluster. We've got you covered there as well. We have a multi-cluster dashboard that allows you to manage all of those Kasten deployments across multiple clusters and also set global policies and profiles against that. I'll touch on what a policy is and what a profile is as well. But everything that we have is part of that Kubernetes API as soon as we're deployed because we become those custom resource definitions within the cluster. So we can start to dive into those at that point. So a simple Helm chart deployment. We have our Helm chart deployment and it's a Helm install K10. And the other thing that I'll mention now, like, so this is backed by an open source project of ours called Navigate, and that's N-A-V-I-G-8, the number eight. And this is a visualizer for your Helm chart. So anyone that's got a Helm chart and maybe their operator, their sysadmins have come to them and gone, I have no idea what how you set these values. And you've got all of these values, which is, yeah, quite a lot because bearing in mind we're agnostic to everything, we obviously have an option for everything as well. 
This allows us to visualize that and then gives us a result, a spit out of what it needs to look at so that you can then deploy that. So we're using it with install.caston.io with our own Helm chart, but anyone can use Navigate as a as their own like <laughs> visualizer for their Helm chart as well. So when K10 is deployed, all of the pods are up and running. You get access to it either via like load balancer, simple application within Kubernetes, exactly the same way, port forward if you wish. And what you're going to see is we're, the first initial page, the first initial dashboard, is it's going to dynamically discover our applications. Now, applications equals namespaces. I only have one. It's a MongoDB. I have a volume. Well, I have two volumes, two PVCs. I have some workloads. I have a stable set. I have some networking services that go along with that. But you can imagine how complex this gets and how quickly complex this gets. So this is going to break down all of the manifests that you have, all of the artifacts that build up that application. We've got visibility of that. And this allows us to go and protect that if we wish. But we dynamically discover all of this. We then have the concept of policies. Policies is where we can create our, okay, I want to protect it or I want to import it. I'll touch on import as well. But snapshot is basically how do I take a, an initial snapshot and then export that out into a, a location. An import is when you want to recover it into a different Kubernetes cluster. We say we want a snapshot. We want to hit it hourly. When do you want it to happen? What's the retention look like? What If you want to enable backups to export out into S3, and then how do you want to select the application? So we could do that by name. We could also do that via labels, if you had labels in your cluster. And then we can start to get quite granular about what resources do you want to actually include and exclude. So there might be secrets that I don't want you to store them or config maps, irrelevant for us to store them. And you can get really granular what you protect. We also have another open source. So I mentioned around the consistency. How do we get into... MongoDB or Postgres or MySQL and start leveraging MySQL dump or Post or PG dump to take an application consistent copy of that database and QS it. Because if you think about a database, it's, got, it's constantly being hammered for transactions. We come along and take a backup and then it's a bit of a guesswork as to how we marry things up. By integrating into PG dump, we go actually pause the IO a second, QS the workload, now we're going to take a copy. Now continue IO is the pre premise to that. And that's not new for Kubernetes. This is a database thing for years gone by. I was going to say real quick, that's a good point you made. We actually had a question on that, like wondering how exactly the backups are done in the QSing in SQL, because that's something that you only learn about, I think, a lot of times as a beginning you know, ops person or dev developer or whatever, you learn about that. When you try to restore a database and it's it doesn't mount because it wasn't QS properly and it's basically an incomplete file, or it has to do a recovery in it and you see this little message that says we're, we're scanning the database or whatever, we're replaying logs or something because you didn't properly QS it. So you're saying that like this is basically smart enough to recognize out of the gate, for example, Postgres, and it's able to just do all that for you or you have to like tell it what type yeah. of database you're doing or yeah Ex exactly that you have to tell it which one you want in fact that's a good segue into another open source project that we have called canister in fact let me dive into that because i'd much rather talk about the open source stuff that we have and how it solves problems away from the k10 the corporate commercial product as much as that's important so canister can be used as a standalone way of taking those application consistent application dumps, if you like. They're generally called dumps in the database world. And Canister can be used standalone. And we've got some people in the community using this with cron jobs. But I would say like we heavily use that with inside K10. If you think about K10 as the orchestration engine from a backup perspective, Canister is a tool in which we use to bolt onto the scheduler, the orchestration of the backups. Canister is heavily used within K10, but it's a standalone separate project as well. Going back to the point about which, which databases or how do you do it, we have the concept of blueprints. Things like Cassandra, Cockroach, Couchbase, Mongo, MySQL. Yeah, we know that there's 300 different types of databases. 
there's not one for everyone, but this is another reason for that community open sourceness is, well, people people contribute and people bring the blueprint to them. So this gives us the ability to protect things like Elasticsearch. So if we look at this MySQL blueprint, which again becomes part of, it's a blueprint that we deploy, either part of Canister, Canister can be deployed via a Helm on its own, but also equally it's deployed as part of the K10 deployment. We have a couple of different actions. We have a backup action, and this is specifically for Canister. But we're basically defining a few things, like where we're we gonna send the backup, where we're we gonna send the dump, what is the database called, what is the pod called, and then we're actually gonna get into, okay, now that we know where it is, let's instruct MySQL dump to take that backup and send it to our temporary location. But basically we're triggered, it's an if this, then that type scenario. And we have a backup action, we have a restore action that does the opposite. We then have a delete action because you don't want these sticking around forever. Now that's a very basic look at a blueprint. We leverage them within K10 as well. So hopefully that covers that. So we would choose that as part of that. Uh, is that blueprint an actual Kubernetes resource? Or yes. is that something specific to, okay. Yeah, so when we install Canister as well, we get blueprints as a as a CRD in resource there as well. Type, yeah. Very cool. But this is the K10. This is how we're using it. Uh, so yeah, that's another open source project that we're heavily involved in or maintaining. Sorry, real quick question around, since we're talking about those backup policies, we have some incremental backups. Or how does, I guess maybe more about that combined with another question is sort of like, is incremental still the way we still think of incremental? Like, is it still? Yeah. So just for the benefit of everyone, what does incremental even mean? So on day one, regardless of if, if it's Kubernetes, VMware, next gen data, whatever the next thing, big thing is, unless we decide that we are going to be magicians, the first day we have to take a full backup. So we're going to take a full copy of everything and we're going to store it in a location. What incremental or the proper term for incremental would be is what's changed since day one or first backup, we only want to take that. And that to be able to do that, we either walk the whole file system and understand what's changed since the last backup, or we implement or have something called change block tracking that enables us to only take the changes since the last backup. Kubernetes, so actually to go into that, there's a kepin at the moment around CBT, change block tracking. So at the moment, we don't have anything natively in Kubernetes, but we're working on that and we're heavily involved with that planning architecture from a custom point of view. But secondly is that, so we do have our own way of about understanding what's changed since the last backup as well. So yes, we do have the concept of incremental backup. So again, backup is easy. Backup might be that we take a full backup every day. Is that the most efficient way? Not if it's 700 terabytes of data, that's gonna take you a very long time every single day. You, but then you're only changing five gig. Okay, that's the easy part, right? So. So in answer to the question, yes, we have a level of change rock tracking built in, but we can make that better as, as a Kubernetes community by bringing CBT to Kubernetes as well. And think about other areas that we could use that as well, not just backup. Define CBT real quick. Yeah, so CBT, change rock tracking. So that understands what's changed since the last backup. So if you've got 100 gig, 100 gig is the full backup. We're going to take that. Change rock tracking is... During that, let's say that we're backing up at midnight every night and we've written another five gig or we've changed five gig of data to that 100 gig. So now we're at 100 gig, 105 gig. Change rock tracking would alert us to understand that only five gig has been changed so that it understands what blocks need that are different to the ones before. So we only move those blocks. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> cool. At the block level. Exactly. It's right yeah. down to the block level so that we, it means that we're the most efficient we can possibly be at that point. Without getting into massively into the weeds, we've written our own data movers to lift and shift data in the most efficient possible way. And things like CBT is only going to enhance that. But it doesn't mean that the work that we've already put in, we'll just have multiple options to move data from A to B. Yeah. Not to get too much into that, but I guess that means that you have to understand the storage as well in order to do the block level. 
Yes, indeed. I have one quick question. Policies, when I think of policy, I usually think of this is something that's going to restrict a user from doing something. But here we're talking about a policy defining the backup job. Is that a common way of, of referring to that in like the backup world or is that a Veeam thing or? No, this is a Kasten thing. We'll, and the same for snapshots and exports. I would rather that be snapshots and backups, but that's yeah. me and I'm trying to influence <laughs> that little steps. Policy, it, I would rather that be a backup job yeah, because that would make more sense because policy, because this is the thing as well, which we probably won't get to, but we integrate into things like Namata or Caverno or OPA that's where the policy, that's where I, right, right. The policies, right. And we integrate there so we can have a policy that dictates that we need a policy to back up our stuff. And you're like, policies mm-hmm. for policies. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. But that, that is well, a common industry term, though. That is, a, that is an industry term. It backup is. policy is, is a thing. Is. Yeah. yeah. Like backup, it like is. when I have a backup policy, that that is the overarching. Like there's many jobs within a policy, at least in my point of view. Mm, like you might have mm. a specific backup job that ran last night at midnight, but that was a part of a policy that overarches, mm. you know, all the types of data. And that's what I love. You know, the, the advanced enterprise stuff, you can't make a job for every backup no. location. Like mm. if you have a hundred databases and 500 replicas of that database or whatever like you can't really make a job for each one you need a policy that goes out and finds all those things does it holistically yeah Yeah. otherwise someone's job is all day is to rinse and repeat backup job after backup job after backup job so yeah exactly and then if you think about like the nature of kubernetes as well things go things things come things go things grow (laughs) all of the things now that dynamicness like i've been pretty stringent on like i want to protect everything that happens in the mongodb namespace but i could in theory i could come in here and say okay and especially at the global if you've got let's say you've got 10 kubernetes clusters you've got 10 k10 deployments in all of them and we're on day zero we haven't deployed any applications yet but we know that we are going to deploy stuff that has mysql in we could do that via labels and we can say right dynamically just grab everything that has the label MySQL. And then the app teams know that anything that they deploy with MySQL has to have that label on, and we dynamically pick that up. And it was kind of a, I remember seeing this in the virtualization space around VMware and storage policy-based management and vSphere tagging that never really or hasn't really ever grown. I've asked that, I've been to the last like 10 VMworlds or VMware Explorers, and I always ask who's using vSphere tagging because it's a way of being able to collate everything before it's even been created, like that dynamicness. But that really works here is that we can create stuff on the fly that gets automatically discovered and protected without us having to go into each individual policy. That's a big deal, too, because 20 years ago, it was a it was the process was during a project when you want to deploy a new database for a new application you're deploying in your data center you would have to tell the backup engineer, hey, before we go live, create the backup policy for that, you know, that thing we're about to create. Otherwise, it would never get discovered and you would never have protection. And it was like a checkoff on the checkoff list of going to production was, do we have the backup jobs in place and ideally tested? But nowadays, like with the, that's an interesting point of view of like how so much how things have changed so much is that data is showing up in our clusters without really anyone's it's not like we announce new data. <laughs> Everyone at the company is aware we have a new database. Like, no, it just happens. Yeah, and then the, yeah. Yeah, exactly. No one's waving their arms going, this is new. Right. Yeah. Right. And if you have somebody's job like, to check the servers every month to make sure that all the data is backed up, that's too late. Like, you're already at risk. You need things that are dynamic. So as a part of these policies, you're saying that they're discovering things, like you said, based on labels, based on names, based on other aspects you might put into the cluster, and it's able to discover it and start backing up stuff up automatically. Yeah, and just on on top of that as well, like let's say that you've got, well, generally like applications that are tiered from a, and I'm just going to use gold, silver, bronze type as a tiering system. It doesn't have to be that. But what we could do as well is we can set defined policies that say, okay, gold needs to be on the hour every hour, silver needs to be every day, bronze needs to be once a week. We can set them policies as well. And we can get quite granular about what that needs, especially like I've got two applications here. 
I've never seen a customer with only two applications in their cluster, unless it's a defined cluster just for that one application. And that's a very different story at that point. K10 will come in and just protect that one thing. You probably don't need the presets, but that's just another area that we've enhanced that over the last couple of releases as well. Good stuff. That's a good question real quick, by the way. So you have your backup storage itself and you're saying that's an object store? Yes. So in fact, so usage and reports, this is what is going to, the biggest thing for me over the last 10 years, 15 years of working with virtualization backup admins is what's your change rate? And everyone looks at you like you're speaking a different language and you don't know it. No one does. But what this does is actually give you that live storage and what that total capacity looks like. So even if this is, so it gives you insight into live storage but also what you're storing in snapshots and backups in object storage. So every K10 deployment deploys Prometheus as well. You don't have to, you can point it to a federated Prometheus. I won't get into all of that, but we deploy our own Prometheus to get these metrics as well. We also deploy Grafana, start to see, okay, my catalog is X amount of size. My job volume is this size. You start to see a little bit more information about how your backup infrastructure is also running because you'd hate for your backup infrastructure to fall over if you need to recover something. So this is a good way of just having that up in a a NUC type situation, just making sure that everything's green and not red. Okay, location profiles. So under settings, we have the ability, so this is where we're gonna send offsite. Forget about snapshots. Snapshots are great, but they're not they're not a backup. They are a very fast recovery point, but you should always send some backup somewhere else. Like get it off that cluster because a snapshot is gonna be tied not only tied to the cluster, but it's also tied to the namespace. You delete that namespace, bang, the volume snapshot goes away as well. And that volume snapshot that I'm talking about is created with us triggering the CSI volume snapshot as well. That's not us creating some spurious, our own like type. We're leveraging the native tool set in there as well. So options for profiles, where can we send those backups offsite? Amazon S3, Azure storage, Google Cloud storage, an NFS file store, any S3 compatible storage, as well as a Veeam repository. So these are the options where, when we talk about exports, this is that location profile. This is where we can store those what, another thing to add is that when we talk about sending it to S3 or S3 compatible, we can also take advantage of the object lock API. So immutability and versioning within your S3 bucket. Is that kind of like a hint preview to the uh, to the ransomware? Because <laughs> that's yeah, important, exactly. right? We want our backup jobs to be immutable so that we can't, yeah, they're not affected by that, yeah. Yeah, because, and the demo that I run through is, so I gain access to my environment, my Kubernetes environment, my actual, just my infrastructure. I dive into my MySQL database. I encrypt that and take a copy of that. And then I dive into AWS and I destroy the bucket. Now, on the face of it in AWS S3, when you destroy a bucket or you destroy a folder within a bucket, it looks like you've destroyed it. Winner, you can take your hoodie and dark glasses off now and carry on walking down the street successful. But actually with versioning, it's under the hood, but equally that database is still encrypted. So there's different attack surfaces when it comes Mm -hmm. to data as well. Yeah, and we're seeing more and more databases actually become the source of an attack vector out there in the wild. Yeah, exactly. Just to run through these very quickly as well. Infrastructure profiles, this is just how we... So as much as I said K10 is agnostic, and we're the Switzerland, we don't care who we work with. We have a few bells and whistles with some. So the likes of AWS, Azure, and Google, this just allows us to start inheriting and start using like IAM controls that have been already set within the cloud provider. You also see Ceph and OpenStack and Portworks from a storage perspective, vSphere as a location profile. This is relatively new. This is part of the V the Veeam integration points that we have as well. Now, one thing I haven't talked about, if you're going to go, like, let's say that all of our Kubernetes clusters are in AKS. Okay, AKS is very different to EKS. Yes, it's still Kubernetes, and some of it will be the same. But maybe, like, storage class is a prime example. 
storage class example from AKS to EKS is very different. What this allows us to do is transform what that restore needs to look like. Ultimately, I would then be able to go, okay, if it was, well, if I went from AWS, EKS, EBS storage, and I wanted to go to CSI, AKS, I would simply put as part of the recovery process, make that change as part of the manifest. So it's not just data that we're thinking about, it's how we transform that data or that application as it comes through. There's a much better, there's an example on there, but this is where I start talking about things like application mobility. Uh, I'm not really, we're not really having the conversation about vendor lock-in, but people like to not be locked in. Like as soon as you say, oh, you're massively locked in there, people like get scared about that. This is that easy button about being able to say, well, you don't have to be. Like we can literally take any of the application that you have and we can move it from A to B and we can transform any part of that application. Now, obviously, if you're in AKS or you're in EKS, they have their own, like their own integrations. They have their own CRDs as well that they deploy within the cluster. So we can't manipulate that or you can't, we can't implement AWS EKRDs into AKS. We're not, not magicians on that front. But what we can do is if there's an equivalent service, we can manipulate that as well. So this is literally, we can replace anything with anything, the long list of testing and operating. And that kind of goes back to a, another point that was made around, okay, how do you test the backups and make sure that they're okay? Well, we could do that through transformation as well. Yeah, that's a question uh, we have actually. He says, does Kasten K10 provide any mechanism to test the validity of a backup before restoring it? In other words, how can I make sure that my backup will be restored successfully? So, so yes, today, again, I would say a very light MVP. You have to do the heavy lifting here. You'd have to bring the test. Like, what do you actually want to test? What? How do you want to define what that looks like? So, yes, we can do that. We don't have to restore back to the original location. We can create a new namespace and you can throw it in there. All good. We can do that. What I would like to see is an automated way of being able to tick against multiple aspects of the application to say this is good. Very similar to Veeam and Sure Backup, if anyone is aware of that. So Sure Backup is a, an automated way of verifying your backups. And it tests to get it spins up the VM in an isolated environment. It tests against the app. It tests against the operating system. And it sends you a report to say, yeah, that was all good. So the backup finishes. It then runs that test. You've got peace of mind, green ticks everywhere, good stuff. We don't have to worry about that. Or at least we're not worrying about it when we come to recover. That's the important part there. So yes, there's ways in which we can do it. Can it be better? A field CTO technologist point of view, always. Can you do it today? Yes. <laughs> and we didn't uh, really, We maybe we covered it already, but this is capable of backing up more than just the data, the PVCs itself, right? Like, so it's, is it able to back up the entire API so that if you need to restore that namespace, including all the resources in that namespace, you can do that? Yeah, exactly that. And as well as cluster scope resources as well. So if you've got, let me think of an example. Like what a backup policy <laughs> or, yeah, oh, or, yeah, yeah, or a Kyverno policy or something like that. That's cluster wide. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. If it's a cluster wide resource, then we can protect that as well with a policy. But yes, so we're not just protecting the PVC. We're protecting everything. It has our spec. So it has our blueprint that we said it has a config map or it has config maps. It has namespace, secrets, service accounts, services, stateful sets, storage classes. So we can recover that application as simple as it is. We could lift that from this backup and we can restore it into another Kubernetes cluster somewhere. Very cool. We have a couple other questions real quick while we're on the topic of Q&A. Is the policy equivalent a task in the Kasten world? We were Earlier we were talking about backup policies and is there a task definition yeah, so everything that we do becomes an action. So you have policies there, which is the definition of what the policy is. But when then policies run, they are their actions. So so we can manipulate any of these. So in terms of policies, we have a YAML for that policy. So you could take that. You could define multiple different policies without doing it. Click, click, click. And you bring it into your environment. 
I have a quick question, since we're looking at a lot of the YAML there, is everything in Kasten able to become, am I able to do basically a GitOps model, an infrastructure's code model maybe for the entire product where I can put it all in a repo and then deploy it to Kubernetes and then the tool will pick it all up? Is that kind of the workflow? I mean, obviously we have the GUI and you can change things in the GUI, but I'm just thinking like if you have, you know, if we're very pro GitOpsy infrastructure's code here. So yeah. I'm thinking like, how would I if, I, if we did it my way, I would want to put it in a GitHub repo, a bunch of YAML for the policies, the configuration, all the blueprints, all that stuff you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So we could absolutely do that. I've also done a session on integrating backup into your GitOps pipeline. And that's uh, specifically was using Argo CD. Mm-hmm. So Argo CD remains your GitOps interface or yeah. your the tool, the API. And it, every time you make a change in your application that does have data associated to it, whether it's MySQL, you name the data service, is it will trigger a backup before any of the application is updated between version one and version two and so on. And you could do the same from a restore point of view. And in fact, a use case there would be, think about like data scientists, they want to multiple copies of their model and multiple copies of their data or one copy of their data, but they want multiple copies of their model. They could use that GitOps model to define what that multiple copies of a backed up model would look like, how they would spin it up multiple times. And then at the end of the day, they they bring it all down again and so forth. So there's a, yeah, there's a potential different use case. Again, it's not just backup and recovery when it comes to, when it comes to K10. Yeah. We have one more question there. What about mm-hmm. security? We talked about a little bit about the or the the re, sort of the read only nature of the backup storage. What about security? Does Casten provide any mechanism to make it make sure that the backup is not tampered with? So we we have several ways. So yes, in in which we have <laughs> integration into several different areas, whether it be yeah. from a secrets management point of view and, and rotation of keys with. Things like HashiCorp Vault and Amazon Secrets Manager from that yep. point of view. But, and then from an authentication model to get into K10, again, I'll do authentication. This also allows us to, out of the box, we will enable this token based authentication. That's really not going to be like, it's, a, it's good for testing, but ultimately the token is a token that is stored as a Kubernetes secret. I'm going to let other people tell you about the downfalls of that, but good for lab environments and testing. But we do also integrate into OpenID and OIDC type providers, and that gives you a little bit more like MFA type authentication into your K10 dashboard and your backups are then protected via using something like HashiCorp Vault. Hopefully that helps. Yeah. So if we see something out of the ordinary happening on our S3 bucket or in that backup repository, we'll alert that. We're going to say there's something not quite right happening. It's more of a like a flare going up versus a, we're going to do anything about it. I always talk about us being right of the bang versus left of the bang. We're getting more towards where we have to do more left of bang, preventative versus remediation. But yeah, at the moment, we're at the shooting up flare stage of yeah, something might not be quite right with that. So, yeah, there's that. In terms well. of backups, like whether or not the backup acted correctly, is that what you're? No, this like is more about. Yeah, so the example there is let's say we're backing up to Amazon S3. We're not using immutability on S3, mm-hmm. but someone's got, someone's added a new folder to an S3 bucket that is our backup repository. That'd be weird. So, that would trigger an alarm into K10 and go, Something's not quite right. There's an anomaly there that okay. we should, you should consider. It's only going to say, like, this doesn't look quite right. It might be completely innocent, but we're going to warn you anyway. Or it might be that someone's tried to delete all of the backup data out of it. Now, if you're not using immutability, then they might be able to. If you've, if IAM's not configured correctly and anyone can gain access to your S3 bucket, then they're going to be able to delete everything out of the bucket. And I think that's right. where the I think that's where the question was going. So at the moment we're always suggesting use some sort of immutability on your backup repository because that will enforce it. But then also 
use best practices when it comes to that location profile. Make sure that only the bare minimum people have access to it. Yeah. I was going to ask real quick, how do we get started? So it's a simple Helm chart deployment. So one, you need a Kubernetes cluster. But we've documented quite a few of the common Kubernetes clusters. I for Normally, for me, I would use either Kind or, especially at a home lab, use a Meet. But I'd also use Minikube. I've actually done something. If you just search for a little plug for a little project that I did, Michael Cade and Project Pace, this is actually a walkthrough on getting started with Minikube and casting K10 on top and a few data services. You see there's a folder on Argo CD, so you can run through what that GitOps model looks like. Yeah, that that's a, the easy way to get started. But ultimately, it's just a Helm, Helm installation. Super easy. Helm install K10 or Helm add repo K10, and then yeah, off you go. I'm seeing is here there on the a website. Cost? Sorry. Oh, I say five nodes free. So yes. once you go beyond the five nodes, then you need to start. Are you paying per node or how's that? You work? are, yes. So it's licensed on a per worker node basis. So out of the box, anyway, you're going to get a 500 node limit and you're going to have, I think you get 30 days with that. Then you, st then you flip over to this five node limit, like freemium community edition. Uh, and it's based on worker nodes. So if you have a three, Three node control plane, that's fine. And then, but you've, you can only have five worker nodes as to where you run your workloads. So we're not including the control plane in the license. All right. So I show, um, I'm just going to send people to this, to the free K10 download there, casting.io slash free dash Kubernetes. How, so you mentioned, you showed docs. Docs.casting.io is another area. Um, and what was that GitHub repo that you have as an example? So this is project base, yeah. So and the idea around this was how can I quickly spin up an environment really on any machine anywhere? Minikube's great for that. And it also gives us CSI functionality, host path, but still gives us that functionality. And this is work in progress, but it will give you the ability to get started. Yeah, so like Helm repo. You, yeah, so github.com slash Michael Cade slash project underscore pace. All right, well, I'll make sure to get a copy of that, put it in the show notes. All right, so what else? I know we're running short on time, but uh, anything else that we uh, missed that's essential? Just, so I have this common question quite quite a lot. I don't know why I'm using all the Qs and Cs there. But the final thing to mention would be not all data will reside in Kubernetes and it never, not everything will end up in Kubernetes, despite some people's say so. <laughs> But like, much, you no matter how much we try to force it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. So let's say something like AWS RDS, obviously a great PaaS-based database service. You can also talk about Mongo Atlas. You can talk about Cloud SQL in Google. Name a PaaS database service. And maybe I am running a stateless workload within Kubernetes that is connecting to that database. But maybe there is some sort of config map that connects the two, and maybe there's some other different projected volumes that store a little bit of scraped data into my Kubernetes environment. Basically what I'm getting at is from a canister and K10 perspective, we can also go outside of the Kubernetes cluster and protect that PaaS-based service. So in our documentation, if you go to extending K10 with canister, on there we have canister enabled applications, and you can see RDS Postgres SQL and RDS Aurora backup as well. Yeah. And what these do, these are blueprints that enable us to go and protect those. So you have a config map <laughs> and a secret that allows you to authenticate into the database. Your application will have that already. We're going to leverage that secret and that config map to understand where that database is and where that data service is. And what we're going to do is we're going to go out and capture that plus the application in Kubernetes. And then we can move that wherever you need that to be. So if you wanted to get out of RDS and bring it into a stateful set, we could do that. But equally, if you're in a stateful set and you want to go to RDS, we can do that as well. So that it's that whole freedom of choice as to where you want to put that database. Or put a better way, the level of control that you want on that database. If you have that as a stateful set, then you're completely in control of it, which could be a good thing if you're a DBA and you love that, great. 
if you're not and you've inherited that database and you don't want the bells and whistles to turn the knobs and all of that good stuff, then RDS might be the best cost factor going. And I see a bit of everything. So yeah, that's 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 it. Yeah. So that was really the kind of, uh, that was one thing that I remembered that I wanted to touch on yeah. as well, because I think when it comes to protection, that no one is just going to have a Kubernetes cluster. They are going to have other services running somewhere else. And whether that is a database on a virtual machine, whether it's RDS, whether it's... And that's where then blueprints really come in and shine. And they're very custom because if you're running a virtual machine with Mongo on, for example, then you can write a blueprint that allows you to protect and snapshot that using EBS snapshots. Or it could, in theory, trigger Veeam backup for AWS that would allow you to protect... Mm -hmm that virtual machine as well in a consistent fashion. Yeah, it, it reminds me of how, you know, it's pretty rare nowadays to have one backup solution for everything. The data center, your clouds, you know, multi-cloud, you know, Kubernetes aware, it, you know, the backup world has gotten complex. I remember a time where we were able to ArcServe, I believe was the tool I was using way back in the day. I'm showing my age again, back in the data center and how we were able to really do pretty much everything, if not everything, in the data center, but as soon as we went cloud and now we're everything's hybrid and multi-cloud and IoT and all this stuff, it gets to be a very complicated web of tooling. And it's good to yeah, see I mean, that was, you know, you're thinking outside the cluster here, so that's good. It was complicated enough and all I had to deal with was a Vinca server to have my active passive netware server. <laughs> active passive netware, that's a good time. Netware three, three one, I'm trying to remember my, la my last netware yeah. version in the 90s. All right, so this has been great. I know we we could probably talk about this tool for three hours, right? Like we could have we could turn this into a getting started guide, and I would be I would love to sit on that call and learn how to actually implement a tool like this because this feels very much like it should be in my wheelhouse and I should know it. And I always talk about how backups and restores aren't sexy, like they're just not naturally something that we all get excited about going to. And but the fact that you have a conference, that's a good thing. Like at least there's the, yeah. And you had a conference, it. you said in Miami. Now yeah. I grew up near Miami on a little island called Key Biscayne, and so I know from my own personal experience that Miami's a horrible place. And if there's a conference, I'll go to the conference. But I have a feeling that some people think that Miami is a worthwhile place to visit and might actually want to be at a beach. So was be having a conference there a good thing or a bad thing for attendance? So we were in the Fountain Blue. It's happened already. And okay, it's the yeah. second time we did yeah. it. So we were right on, on the beach as well. Numbers-wise, if you think, like, Veeam is a backup company. Going to your point, uh -huh. Brett, Backup is boring, but I've been here eight years. I kind of enjoy it. And uh, fifteen hundred people turned up. Like that's, I yeah. feel like that's a good number for a backup yeah. event. Yeah, well, I should say it's boring for everyone except for the person whose responsibility it is to backup and restore. It is not boring for them, but for most yeah. other people, it's like putting air in your tires. It's like I, it's not something I'm excited about doing. <laughs> it's always bottom of the list, right? That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I had worked before for a company that made a fax server, so that was also pretty boring. So yeah, there you go. Actually, yeah, you've just yeah, you've, you've made backup seem pretty exciting again. <laughs> yeah, oh, the backup seminar for learning how to backup my fax server—that's the one that yes. I'm going to take a, yes. I'm gonna take yeah. a nap in. Oh, yeah, the first mission to go to. <laughs> well. Michael, it's been great having you here. Uh, I don't know why we haven't had you on before, but uh, we definitely will have you back when, when I don't know, K11 comes out. I don't, I'm making that up. Don't put that <laughs> yeah, on. <there. laughs> yeah, but this is great. And I think this is one of those things where like, like when we had Kyverno on and you know, some of these other tools where they kind of are a necessary, I'm not gonna call it a necessary evil, but they're a necessary thing that we often all gloss over, right? When we're all talking about implementation, day one, you know, DevOps kind of stuff, we typically skip over configuring backup policies. But I really am glad that we have some of these shows like this because I think it's kind of foundational and we don't like to talk about it because it's, I mean, DevSecOps nowadays is a more popular term, but we don't really have like, what's the backup equivalent of that acronym? Like a dev, dev back ops. <laughs> 
<laughs> instead of yeah. backup, maybe it's dev back ops. We don't talk about that, right? And uh, at least not as an industry as a whole, right? There's not a lot of exciting conversation around it when people show their, let me spin everything up in a Kubernetes cluster in one go. There's usually not a backup policy in there. And I'd love for us to change change that mindset so that backups are just a part of everything that we do. And putting it as a, as a resource is also exciting to me because I can put it right next to my application deployment resources. I can put in the policy resources for backups. So this has been good for me. I'm glad to well, you think it's not a backup option. You think it's not talked about? I actually think of, you know, maybe not the word backup, but disaster recovery, I do think of, and it's kind of what we're talking about, right? Yeah, but you, what I'm saying is you go to a conference, right? Like, uh, let's yeah. go to Sivo Navigate. How many of those sessions were about <laughs> restores? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. We, we love talking about the new and exciting, but the reality is sure. every single deployment of a new tool, of a new type of architecture, of a new NoSQL database, whatever, like mm -hmm. there's a backup and restore component to that that we don't really cover a lot of times. Right. And it's a habit That's in true. the industry for us to not talk about ops, backups or security security i feel like we're starting to fix we're starting to make it cool mm -hmm. to talk about security or like it's necessary and you're not cool if you don't talk about it whereas 15 10 years ago it was definitely not as prominent I, I, i'm not sure that restore and dr is at that level of prominence yet <laughs> that's all i'm saying is that we could do better yeah. but we're doing yeah. that right now so yeah we're fixing that yeah, exactly and my biggest thing is like whether it's i don't care whether you use casting k10 or not i don't have a number so associated to me but just <laughs> consider that consider that database so that's one thing we saw at kubecon right in in amsterdam show floor was full of database or data services data database data protection everywhere there's open source op options canister for one to be able to orchestrate that that backup in a consistent way and just think about that three two one rule it's going to take generally i always say that backup is never top of anyone's list until they lose some data and then it starts to become top of mind for that person every single time which it we should it shouldn't with shows like this this allows us to raise awareness of data protection data management before the fact the fact that i work there doesn't mean you have to use it at all hopefully that wasn't pitchy at all but yeah, that it's it's really raising awareness of if you've got data, if it's important, protect it. Yeah, I think that should be the last yeah. word. That's a great that's a great motivational poster. I think we should you know for backups. And I'm excited to give this a shot on some of my my demo clusters. So I don't ha I don't I'm not in charge of anyone's real production. I purposely designed my consulting like that. So you don't call me at midnight. So I don't have anything in production, but I'm excited to talk to us about with some of my customers and clients. How can people, so you're on Twitter. We didn't talk about that. People can reach out to you on Twitter. I think it's like Michael Cade one or something. Yeah. At Michael Cade one. Yeah. yeah. That's generally where I've taken it everywhere. Cause I can't have it at Michael Cade, but that's another story. Who, who is the other Michael Cade? Well, the other one, Cade, is a guy from an actor. Yeah, he's an actor yeah. from California Dreams. Sly yeah, yeah, from yeah. California Dreams. Yeah. I asked him many years ago if I could have the Twitter handle. He <laughs> wasn't so polite in his response. <laughs> um, <laughs> now I have more followers than him. So there's. <laughs> sick burn, sick burn. <laughs> well, so yeah, you can find you on GitHub and on Twitter. We know, we know that um, the links will all be in the show notes for anyone who wants to check out the tool, get the free copy of the five node option and go try some stuff out, go some, learn some stuff on backups and restores. So thanks again, Michael and Matt. Thanks you both for being here. Well, thanks everyone. See you soon. Bye. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>